Israel was organized by God. This was part of what had to happen if she was going to make her way through the wilderness onto her place of promise. We saw some of the organizational pattern in ancient Israel. Uh, there were some who occupied very specific God-ordained offices, for instance. In ancient Israel, some were priests and others were prophets. This was a very specific calling and designation, not generally made available to the people in the camp. But everyone who was part of the community of faith, everyone who was redeemed from bondage and in the wilderness journey on the way to the land of promise, every single person could choose to be more devoted to the Redeemer. Some were excluded from priesthood and some were excluded from the prophetic office, but nobody was excluded from deciding to occupy a position of greater intimacy, faithfulness, submission, yieldedness, holiness, and obedience uh, to the Redeemer. That was open to absolutely everybody. So too today. Uh, we Christians all call upon the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation. He is our Savior. We have him in common, and he is uh, the great, great Savior which we all worship. On the other hand, we are organized just as ancient Israel in some fashion was, and so there's a manifestation of different gifts which we have and different callings and different service opportunities. And just as with ancient Israel, though there are these points of distinction, still we all have in common as Christians the invitation which he regularly gives to enter into still yet greater devotion and dedication to him, to up the stakes, to raise the bar. In ancient Israel, if somebody chose, and it would be an act of one's volition, it wouldn't be constrained by God, it would be invited. If somebody chose to be more dedicated to him, God actually instituted a formal, public, observable witness procedure by which a person could do this because it was just that serious. A redeemed one who didn't want to simply stay there, but who wanted to offer God more since God had given his all. And so God instituted a procedure, and it is recorded for us thousands of years later with accuracy down to this very day. You can find it in Numbers chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. That's where we are this evening. Numbers. It's called the a book of wilderness wanderings. And we can see God's posture with reference to ancient Israel, and then we see how Israel responded to him. Here God invited Israel into deeper commitment, consecration, and sanctification. And they were to do it through a formal, publicly observable procedure. We read about it here, number 6, verse 1. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel. Say to them, When a man or woman makes a special vow. Does your translation say man or woman? See, this is unique uh, don't, don't read past that too, 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 too quickly. You see, so much was not open to women. A woman, for instance, could not occupy priestly office. So there were some things which the woman was excluded from in the camp and on the move, on the way to the land of promise. Certain things were gender-specific, but not this particular vow of greater dedication. This was gender neutral, such that when a man or woman makes this, it's a special vow. It's called the vow of a Nazarite to dedicate himself to the Lord. Now, I used to confuse, maybe you're doing the same thing. I used to easily confuse the term Nazarite with Nazarene. I thought those were pretty much the same thing, but I found out they're not. A Nazarite is a man or a woman who voluntarily chose to take a special public vow of greater dedication to the Redeemer, to God. But a Nazarene is someone who was born where? Do you know, do you know of a famous Nazarene? 
Yeah, yeah, the Lord Jesus. So Nazareth is a place in northern Israel. And if you're from there, you're called a Nazarene. But the Nazarite was entirely different. The word is a Hebrew word. It comes from a root word meaning to dedicate. If someone took a publicly witnessed Nazarite vow, that person was saying, I wish to be dedicated to a greater extent to the one who has redeemed me. And so that's what it means. Nazarite means to dedicate. And so you read here, when a man or woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, see, to dedicate himself to the Lord. Now, why would one, man or woman, already set free? See, this people had been in bondage in Egypt for 400 plus years. They cry out to God. They offer nothing but need. He hears their cry because he's nothing but grace and mercy. He delivers them from a cruel taskmaster. He sets them entirely free. He gets Pharaoh's attention, you recall, through something called the Ten Plagues. No problem for God. Pharaoh finally got the message, and he let God's people go to worship him In the wilderness, they have been set free. They no longer are a slave people. They're a people of promise on the way to the land of promise. What would motivate one of those already, if you will, saved people, redeemed people, fully delivered people? What would motivate them to a level of public vow such that they would say what I have Now is not enough. I want to offer even more of myself to the one who redeemed me. I'll tell you why they would take this vow. They wanted to. Something inside them moved them to say, I want to give more yieldedness, more submission. I want to render greater obedience. I want to be consecrated, separated from worldly things and unto my Redeemer even more. It would be some kind of internal inclination. You either got it or you don't. Do you? If you do, that's produced by your Redeemer. That doesn't come naturally. If you do, it's his Holy Spirit in you saying, you have all of me, but I don't yet have all of you. Do you wish to give me more? Not unto salvation, for you're already redeemed, but in response to salvation. So they, redeemed ones, would make this unusual public vow, they would participate in this public ceremony because something inside of them produced a desire to be more pleasing to God. It is a very sad thing if you feel okay where you are in your Christian life. You ought to pray that God give you a kind of a, I call it a a sanctified dissatisfaction with where you are. Don't Be content with where you are. Say, oh, God, I want to know you more. Just a closer walk with you. What is it in me, God, that perhaps is not pleasing to you? Can you root it out? I want to be separated, holy, consecrated, sanctified, more fully unto you. I hope that's the case with you. I hope it is the case with me. I hope we just are not coming to the point where we're going through the motions. We go to church, we leave church, we pray a little bit, we read the word a little bit, we share a little bit, we give a little bit, we do all the... No, 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 no. There has to be something inside which says, I'm not satisfied. I'm not content. Something which cries out, oh God, there's got to be more. There is more. I don't need more of you. You must have more of me, and then I will experience more of you. I hope that's happening to you. We used to sing a song, All I Want for Christmas is My Two Front Teeth. Why don't you pray? Oh, God, all I want for Christmas is for you to so stir me up 
inside. You who burst new life in me, will you birth in me a sanctified dissatisfaction with the way things are between us? Because I want you to move me to surrender to you more of me than ever before. That's what ought to happen. So in Israel of old, there were priests and their office was hereditary. You had to be uh, one who was descended from Aaron to be a priest. And then there were prophets and their office was one of specific divine calling and mandate. But then there were other folks, just the sum total of members of the community of the faith who who were neither called to be priests nor prophets, but who they loved God. And therefore, they wanted a greater degree of devotion to him. They were moved in that direction. And so they they took this vow. They made this vow of dedication to the Lord called the Nazarite vow. And it has three principal requirements which are pointed out to us here in verse 3 and on. Here's the first requirement. He shall abstain from wine. And strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink. Nor shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh or dried grapes. All the days of his separation, he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine from the seeds even to the skin. And so the Nazarite would abstain not only from wine and strong drink, but really from anything having to do with what produces it, grapes and grape products. Why? Well, it was a form of self-denial. That's why. It's not that these things were sinful and prohibited. Grape is not a sinful thing. In fact, a grape is a source of pleasure and delight and that's the point the Nazarite during the time of his vow of dedication is essentially saying oh God most high God God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob during this period of consecration uh, I wish to derive my greatest pleasure and satisfaction in life from you And you alone. And therefore, I voluntarily, it's not a mandate, I voluntarily choose not only to abstain from wine and strong drink, but even from vinegar. No no Tabasco, in other words, during this particular time. And, And it's as if the Nazarite is saying, though these things are not sinful, a grape, vinegar, I want to avoid, he was saying, even the appearance of sin. I don't even want to, I don't want to toe the line in the direction of addiction to a substance I can't control. And so I'm backing it up way over here. And so I don't even want to mess around with the grapes, which are part of the process of producing the intoxicating stuff that may get me and may not let me go. That's what this person is saying. If this person voluntarily chooses to publicly declare his interest in manifesting greater devotion to God, then God said, okay, then step up to the plate. Here is requirement number one. Not everyone did this, but the Nazarite must. And then here is the second requirement, verse 5. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall let the locks of hair on his head grow long. No razor cuts, no haircuts. Let that thing just grow out. Why? It would be a noticeable, blatant, outward sign to those around the Nazarite that he meant business that he was seriously sold out for God. And the long hair, which was not typical in this day, would have attracted attention, which might have caused some to be ashamed. They might have said, look at you, you look so, what is with, what is the, 
Where did you get that do? What is hap? What's up? And then the Nazarite would unashamedly respond. And the Nazarite would say, hey, 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 hey. Don't be messing with the hair. It has nothing to do with the hair. It has to do with the heart. I am doing this to demonstrate to everyone I'm separated from the norm. I don't want to just fit in with what's fashionable. Oh, no. I'm consecrating myself unto the Lord. And I'm not ashamed. Forget about the hair. I'm not ashamed of what it called your attention to. You just gave me an opportunity to tell you, I want to live life differently than everybody else. I don't want to just fit in. I don't want the status quo. I want to be separated unto the Lord. So that would be the second requirement. And here's the third and final, verse 6 and on. All the days of his separation to the Lord, he shall not go near to a dead person. He shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother, for his brother or for his sister when they die. Because his separation to God is on his head. Whoa. Third requirement for the Nazarite as part of his vow was that he must not come into contact with a dead body. Why not? Because death is the consequence of sin. We weren't supposed to die. I don't know if you knew that. First man sinned, death entered the human race. And every time one dies or we attend a funeral, it reminds us of the sin nature of man. Thank God. The Redeemer is going to reverse it, but it's still part of the human condition at this time. So in staying away from a dead body, the Nazarite is essentially saying, I wish to remain uh, pure, uncorrupted, undefiled and untainted by human sin. But wait, the text says, therefore, the Nazarite during the time of his consecration shouldn't even go near a dead body if it's even his father or mother or brother or sister. Now, wait just a second. How would that be a manifestation of the Nazarite's love for his family members? I'll tell you how he would be saying to his family, I love you so much that I must demonstrate to you that I love God more. Whoa. You ready for that? That's a tough one. During this time of dedication to the Lord, the Nazarite is essentially saying, I do love you. I love you so much that I can't allow you to think for one moment. You, whom I love, are more important to me than God to whom I am devoted. Mm. That's pretty stiff, isn't it? But that's the Nazareth. That's why not everyone took the vow. And that's why it was voluntary. That's why it wasn't meant. Not everyone was ready for this level of devotion, this level of dedication. So it says in verse 8, all the days of his separation, he's holy to the Lord. But if a man, get this, if a man dies very suddenly beside him, the, the Nazarite's hanging out. <laughs> and I don't know what that deal is. He's sitting around. He's, he's walking down the road. And he happens to be next to someone who keels over and dies on him. Touches him. If, if that ha- I'm telling you, God even allowed, li- listen, uh, anticipates this. If a man dies very suddenly beside him and he defiles his dedicated head of hair, then he shall shave his head on the day when he becomes clean, he shall shave it on the seventh day. Then on the eighth day, he shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons to the priest to the doorway of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall offer one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering and make atonement for him concerning his sin because of the dead person. And that same day, he shall consecrate his head and shall dedicate to the Lord his days as a Nazarite. And shall bring a male lamb a year old for a guilt offering. But the former days will be void because his separation was defiled. Now, folks, God, God ordains a procedure. If through, without willful intent, this Nazarite comes in contact with a dead body, 
then this is the procedure he has to follow to be reconsecrated. Now notice, if he is reconsecrated, and he can be reconsecrated still, all of the days of his dedication up until that point are declared null and void. So if he's been living according to the Nazarite vow, let's just say he started it here, he took the vow here, and he's a month into it, and someone falls down dead on him, (laughs) he accidentally makes contact with a dead body, he has to go through all that stuff to be re-cleansed, re-consecrated, re-dedicated to the Lord. But this whole month of doing without grapes and vinegar and, you know, long hair, the whole deal, is declared null and void. He, it's as if it didn't happen. He has to start from scratch again. That's what it says right there. In fact, it says in verse 13, this is the law of the Nazarite. When the, day, when the days of his separation are fulfilled. When? What does that mean? The Nazarite vow, except in rare occurrences, was not taken for life. It was taken for a limited period of time. Could have been weeks, could have been months, could have been years. It had a specific bounded time. The vow had a beginning point and an ending point. And there were specific procedures to follow to officially declare that the time of the vow has come to an end. And those specific procedures are delineated here. You see the middle of verse 13 and on. He shall bring the offering to the doorway of the tent. He shall present it to the Lord. It consists of a male lamb, a year old without defect. It's a burnt offering. And another lamb, a ewe lamb. It's a sin offering. And then a ram without defect, a peace offering. He shall also bring, it's a basket of unleavened cakes, it says in verse 15, fine flour mixed with oil, unleavened wafers spread with oil, along with their grain offering and drink offering. And then the priest, verse 16, shall present them before the Lord, offering it as a sin offering and burnt offering. Then he shall offer the ram for a sacrifice together with the basket of unleavened cakes. The priest shall also offer the other offerings. Verse 18, the Nazarite shall then shave his dedicated head of hair at the doorway of the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. He should take the dedicated hair and put it on the fire, which is under the sacrifice of the peace offerings. Burns, cuts his hair, shaves it all off, and then he burns it in the fire. The priest shall take the ram's shoulder when it's been boiled and unleavened cake and an unleavened wafer, and he shall put them in the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved off his dedicated hair. And Verse 20, the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. It's holy for the priest, together with the uh, breast offered by waving and the thigh offered by lifting it up, and afterward the Nazarite may drink wine. This is the law of the Nazarite, who vows his offering to the Lord according to his separation. In addition to what else he can afford, according to his vow which he takes, so he shall do, according to the law of his separation. Whoa. Something inside of him moves him to take this public vow of greater dedication. He does so. He follows the procedures. Its time has come to an end, and he follows this exit strategy, if you will, so as to indicate publicly the time of his specific period of consecration has come to an end. It's odd. I must say, a lot of stuff we're reading about is odd, different. We don't do these things. But it's very, very important. If this is God's word, and it is, it must apply to us today. So let's talk about how it might. We just read about procedures in ancient Israel thousands of years ago. What about us today? Just a couple thoughts. Did you notice that a fully devoted follower of the Redeemer in those days He's just going to appear strange to onlookers. I mean, this character is walking around with a very unfashionable hairstyle. He is, listen, everyone else is partaking in things, even permissible things, that give them pleasure, like grapes and grape juice and stuff like that. Forget about wine and strong drink, even that other stuff. But he's not doing it. People are asking him, what's with the hair? What's with the, why don't you have wine? Why aren't you doing the grape thing? And he talks to them about his uh, period of great, uh, greater devotion to the Lord and so on. As was the case undoubtedly with that Nazarite, so too 
is the case today. When a Christian chooses to be a fully devoted follower of the Lord Jesus, I guarantee certain family members and friends are just going to think you're weird. They're just going to think you're strange. Nobody likes it, but you ought to just know it. That That's the normative experience. So if that's already happening to you, then you just need to know you're, you're not alone. Undoubtedly, that happened to, to the Nazarite. He refused to participate in certain things, even, forget about questionable things, even permissible things that uh, uh, might have compromised his walk with the Lord. He refused even to do those things. He avoided even the appearance of evil. If something could gain mastery over him, He didn't sample it to see if it would. In fact, he declared he won't even get close to it. If wine is going to get me, I'm not even eating grapes, is what he said. You see? Now, you do stuff like that, I guarantee you, people are going to think you're just odd. Do you know something? Even Christians are going to think you're odd. That's just the way. That's just the way it is. So you just need need to. I mean, the Nazarite stood out as a strange bird. But he stood out unashamedly, very willing to explain his lifestyle to people who asked him to give an account for it. And that'll happen to you and to me if we choose a life of greater dedication to the Lord Jesus. You're going to hear stuff like religion is good, but you don't have to be a fanatic. Well, you don't have to be a fanatic about religion, but you ought to be fanatically devoted to the Lord Jesus who has granted you and I a relationship. Yeah, I don't want to be fanatical about a religion. That's just man-made stuff. But to have a personal, kind of like a marriage, to be in a covenant bond with Almighty God himself through his son, oh, yeah, we ought to have a fanatical, uh, uh, irrational (laughs) devotion to intimacy in that particular relationship. And people are going to think, yeah, I'm a Christian. I just don't, you know, I'm just not like you. What does that mean? What does that? So you just need to know that. Know this also. Though not every member of the faith community in those days took the Nazarite vow, though not every member responded to the invitation, every member was forced to respond because the Nazarite is walking around in the camp. Uh, with longer hair and with a different kind of a lifestyle, inviting all kinds of responses. Some in the faith community uh, would render a response of disdain and disrespect, just as I say. They would say, you know, it's okay to follow the Redeemer, but you don't have to be so crazy like that guy. And so the Nazarite would have effect even on that person. And then the Nazarite in upping the bar, would even entice others uh, to do the same. So you just need to know, if you come to be sold out for the Lord Jesus, people are going to respond one way or the other, some negatively. But don't worry, others quite positively. You'll be the standard bearer. You'll be the role model. You'll be the one they look to, not the watered-down, lukewarm, carnal, backslidden Christian, but the on-fire fully devoted disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. They'll say, I want your kind of relationship with him. So so don't lose heart. The Nazarite, do you notice, did not withdraw from society? Now, you know, people could do whatever they want. You, 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 you could retreat. You could take certain vows and you could go live apart from the rest of the world if you want. And maybe God has called you to do that. I don't know. I, you know, I can't put God in a box. All I can tell you is I don't see anything like that in the Bible. I surely don't see it here with regard to the Nazarite. You know what this Nazarite did? This Nazarite didn't go off to live in some cave somewhere apart from the human race. This Nazarite planted himself firmly in the midst of society so as to influence it. Look at me. I'm a redeemed one who's living like it. Look at me, people. I won't allow you to ignore me. I'll get your attention one way or another. And so this 
you know, there are whole religions who who take these vows and go off and live somewhere and don't talk for many years and don't eat this or don't. I mean, do what you want to do. It's like a free country. But that's not the Nazarite vow. And it ought not be for us. If someone here decides, oh, God, I want to be more fully devoted and dedicated to you. Then don't move into a cave. Let your light shine. Uh, let it pierce the darkness. Because there's plenty of darkness around that needs your light. You do no good in the cave, let me tell you that. You're supposed to impact, so am I, on the world in which we live. So we're to be in it, but not of it, for sure. And that's exactly what was the case with the Nazarite. His dedication to God did not remove him from other people. In fact... <laughs> Uh, it uh, it put him smack dab in their midst so as to influence them. And did you notice that although a uh, defiled Nazarite could be reconsecrated, did you notice that the days of his defilement were all lost? It's kind of like us. You don't lose your salvation. If you think you do, you don't understand who saved you. <clears throat> you don't get it. We could talk, be glad to talk. That's another issue. Uh, But though you don't lose your salvation, you sure can lose for a time the joy thereof, the benefits thereof, the experience thereof. That's what happens when we sin. When a saved person sins, uh, God does not forsake that one. Uh, The Savior is still the Savior. But when the saved person sins, for as long as that person remains unrepentant, all kinds of opportunities are lost, aren't they? Opportunities to minister to another with effectiveness. Opportunities with a clear conscience to pour over the scriptures. Opportunity unashamedly to enjoy intimacy with God, to enjoy prayer. Uh, what's lost is the opportunity to have a joyously clean conscience. <laughs> the joy of obedience is, 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 exceeds all other joys. And so, so you need to know that, folks. When you and I sin, we don't lose our salvation, but we sure lose time. We sure lose opportunities. We sure miss out on a lot. We can be reconsecrated. I didn't say resaved. <laughs> we can be repentant. And we can march back into fellowship with God. No need to be re-saved. We can be uh, participants in the process of sanctification again. But during that period of time, when we went astray from the sanctifier, from the Lord, it's just wasted time. It's just time. It's just time lost. It's just, it's just opportunities. You know what it's like. You, you've been there, and, and so have I. Um, don't do it. <laughs> you know, try not to do it. You know, I... If you sin, try to get over it real quick. I mean, what's done is done. But try not to use it as justification to continue the relapse. Let's say you relapse. The relapse doesn't justify, well, since I've already done this, I might as well go even further. No, 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 no. Why don't you repent at that point? Say, oh, God, thank you for forgiving me. Forgive me, oh, God. I have sinned against you. Thank you for suffering and dying. For this sin. I accept your forgiveness. Thank you for casting all my sins behind my back. Oh God would you strengthen me. I'm weak. I'm prone to do it again. But I don't want to. I make no excuses. I didn't make a mistake. I chose to sin against you. Oh God wash me. Strengthen me. Now now, now Lord I'm jumping right back into fellowship with you. Just as if uh, this didn't happen. As far as the east is from the west. Oh God so far have you separated my sin from me. Now, oh God, let me, let me be a, a holier offering to you. So let me, I told you, I think I told you this story one time I was a missionary overseas and I was uh, replacing a guy who had a reputation that I knew of as being an unbelievably pious, godly guy, kind of a giant. And I was his replacement. This was in Europe many years ago. And I was kind of nervous when I met him and we were hanging out and he was briefing me on what I was supposed to do to take over. And um, and he told me one time, he said, Stuart, in uh, the last uh, 20 years, I don't, I'm not aware of uh, a, a time when I was out of fellowship with our Lord for more than 15 minutes. And I thought, what in the, what? 
She's smoking. What? What? It? But then he saw that I wasn't getting it, and he said, no, 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 no. I didn't say I had not sadly sinned. I just said as soon as God's wonderfully Holy Spirit convicted me of it, I confessed it, turned from it, accepted his, accepted his cleansing, and brought forth fruit in keeping with repentance, you see? So I never forgot that. Sometimes when you sin, you think Jesus hasn't been fully crucified for it. So you have to crucify yourself for a while. You know, you kind of beat up your, on yourself for a little while because you don't think what Jesus did was enough. But that doesn't impress God at all. That's just, you don't have to add to what happened on the cross. You, you just have to run to the cross and accept what happened on your behalf and get right back into fellowship with God. So, so we can lose time, but don't lose too much time. If you find yourself having sinned, confess it. Repent of it and get back with the program real quick. Uh, did you notice that the Nazarite vow, uh, which was made before witnesses and to God, was not taken lightly at all? I mean, it was a big public ceremony and all that stuff. And did you notice it had a specific time frame? It had kind of a beginning and then it had an end. Uh, I found this a little unusual because you would think that consecration should be like a an always and forever thing, right? Shouldn't consecration to the Lord be for life? Well, the answer is yeah. However, listen, God takes our promises, our vows to him so seriously. He takes our words so seriously. We don't take our words seriously. People are always making vows and commitments today that they break all the time. Words mean they've really been devalued, but not to God. If you make a vow, a commitment, a promise to him, oh, my goodness, it's so serious that you know what God says? I don't want you making some vow of commitment to me for your entire life uh, uh, because you don't know what you're getting into yet. I'm going to let you make it time bound. What are you what are you able to do now? Are you able to say, oh, God, for the next three months, I'm not going to mess around with Internet poker. It's crazy. And when I say three months, that's always a bad habit. Yeah, but don't think so highly of yourself that you think you can fulfill your promise of longevity. Instead, say, oh, God, I'm going to do this in steps and stages. Oh, God, I vowed to you for the next three months, no matter what it takes. I'm not going near that stuff. And oh, God. And then what do you do when the three months are over? Do you go back to it? No, you renew your vow. So life should be a series of renewed vows of holiness and consecration to the Lord Jesus Christ. But God says, take it easy. Take it in steps. Don't make promises you can't keep. Oh, God, I give you my life. No, you don't. Instead, you could say, oh, God, if I could just separate from this habit for a week, oh, God, maybe during that time, you'll help Break the hold it has on me. Oh, God, if I could fast during that time, if I could pray against the evil one who has this stronghold on me. Oh, God, if you could grant me victory, then, oh, God, I'll renew the commitment for a second week and a third and all the... It's very, very serious. Don't mess with God. Words are very very important to him. And so he allowed the vow of commitment to be to be time bound. The Nazarite was to evaluate himself and the extent of dedication he was ready to make to the Lord. So are you and I. And so so he we are to renew our vows of rededication to the Lord all through our lives. And then this, do you notice that the Nazarite vow was going to cost him something? Oh, yeah. Are you aware of the fact that discipleship is going to cost something as well? Do you know that discipleship involves personal sacrifice? See, see, see what, what, what Christ gave you and me is what saved us. Now the question is, what are we as saved people willing to give him? You see? 
Just as the Nazarite separated himself from contact with the dead, so too the fully devoted follower of the Lord Jesus Christ must be willing to separate himself or herself from the deadness of this world. What creates spiritual death in you, in me? It's costly. It's self-denial. We are to stay away from that. And so at the heart of the Nazarite vow is a desire to live in a way that's more pleasing to God. So I want to ask you this. Would you be willing to ask yourself this question and answer it on your own time? Is my life pleasing to God? I'm only speaking to Christians here now because if you're a non-Christian, this doesn't apply to you. Your life is not pleasing to God yet. But I'm speaking to Christians. What is it? Is there something in your life that you know not to be something that gives God pleasure? You see, do you realize as a Christian, he created you and saved you for his good pleasure? What is it in your life that doesn't give him pleasure, that doesn't please him? Are you willing to engage in that personal inventory? It's not uh, something we'll ask you to do now because this is so serious. I think you ought to do this privately and in a very prayerful way. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way, any hurtful thing in me and lead me in the everlasting way. That's what the psalmist prayed. That's essentially what the Nazarite asked for. Are you willing? Do you want to be a fully devoted follower of the Lord Jesus? Then you have to say, O God, would you make me aware of Anything in me that does not please you. Are you willing to quit doing it? Are you willing to separate from it so as to give God who redeemed you more pleasure? That's called your cross. That's your cross of self-denial and obedience. There is the cross of our Savior. It obtained our salvation. And there is also the cross of his disciples. Are you willing to carry your cross? If anyone would come after me, the Lord Jesus said, skipping way past numbers on into the new covenant. If anyone would come after me, let him do what? Deny himself and take up his cross daily. See? So the concept of the Nazarite vow continues on from Old Testament into New Testament. It includes self-denial. When you would rather not. It includes obedience. When you would rather not. It includes sacrifice. When you would rather not. And it sometimes includes rejection. When you would rather not experience it. And folks. Sometimes. Sometimes. The cross of the disciple. Involves death. Even when that one would rather. Not die. To be saved costs us nothing, costs the Savior everything. To be a fully devoted follower is quite costly. That's why our churches are filled with saved people who are not devoted followers of the Lord Jesus at all. They just go to church. That's why the world is not too attractive. They don't see our long hair, if you will. They don't see our lifestyle that distinguishes us as Devoted followers of the Lord Jesus. We wear the same clothes. We watch the same movies. We drink the same beverages. We tell the same jokes. We go to the same movies. It may be legal. It may be permissible. Are you willing? Am I willing nonetheless to voluntarily choose to abstain from those worldly things? So as to demonstrate to someone... I have found fullness of joy in a clean, unbridled, unhindered relationship with the most high and holy God. I don't need cheap thrills. I don't need it. Folks, the problem in the world is not with the world. The problem in the world is with the church because we look just like the world. The problem in our world today is that the world is having more influence on the church than the church is having influence on the world. I 
I want to be a fully devoted follower. I don't do it so well. Neither do you. It's okay. It's a process. It's okay. It's a process. We do it in phases. We do it in stages. Sometimes we do it in fits and starts. Sometimes it's one step forward, (laughs) two steps. It's all right. That's the way it is. We're always, always, always seeking greater consecration, greater holiness. We're always responding more to conviction of sin. We're always saying, oh, God, I wish to be separated from this particular thing because I know it is displeasing to you. Folks, make no mistake about it. Your cross is not the way to be saved. (laughs) Accepting what happened on his cross is the way to be saved. But your cross is the way to live now that you are saved. And mine is. And it's the cross of self-denial and sacrifice. And folks, what is true of the master is most certainly going to be true of us. And this is what was true of the master. First, the cross, and then the crown. That is the way of the master. That is the way of those who would follow him. First, the cross. He was humiliated. He was spat upon. He was rejected. He was set apart. He was scourged. He was bloodied. He was beaten. He was humiliated. He was mocked. He was buried (laughs) after having been pierced through. First, the cross. And then up from the grave he arose. Then the father vindicated him. So that after all his humiliation, there was the exaltation of resurrection. And his being seated at the right hand, the position of strength and glory and honor. The right hand of the father. The way of the master, first the cross, self-denial. Oh God, let this cup pass from me. Nonetheless, not my will. See, self-denial. Not my will. Self-denial. I want to do this. Not what I want, but thy will be done. First the cross and then the crown. And every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, folks, this is the way. This is the normal Christian life. And we're being sold a bill of goods by a bunch of people out there that says, accept Jesus and it's smooth sailing. No, that was not the way of the master. Yeah, accept Jesus by word only and not by devotion and consecration. And sure, it'll be easy sailing. You'll just fit in with everybody else. But if you go the way of the master, the way of the Nazarite, the way of the fully devoted follower, the present-day disciple, if you go that way, the world will hate you because it hates your master. But some in the world will say, I want who you have. What is his name? First the cross, (laughs) then the crown. First the humiliation of the devoted follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then full exaltation. Glory awaits the fully devoted follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory and exaltation and rejoicing And worship around the throne. The best is yet to come. Though we suffer a little loss here. It pales in comparison. Paul calls it garbage. Dung. In comparison of the far increasing value of knowing Christ Jesus. I beseech you. And I'm not preaching to anyone any more than I am myself. I don't want to coast. I don't want the status quo. I don't want to settle in (laughs) to the lowest point of acceptable Christian behavior. I would rather set bounds. I would rather draw the line in the sand. (laughs) I would rather not sample this or sample that or go to see this or go to see. Well, it's an R. It's not an X. Oh, come on. The Nazarite wouldn't even have vinegar. We're going to R rated. Come on. The Nazarite said, I'd rather find my joy in the Lord Jesus. You can go to your R-rated movie. Come on. Come on. It's no wonder. It's no wonder 
the world that passes us by. Every weirdo is unashamed of his weirdness today. But we're called to be a distinctively holy people. And we don't want to be. Come on. Come on. So I decided what I was going to do. I thought I'd have you, you know, we'll stand or I'll have you come to the altar and we'll, we'll do different things. But then I read this and I got kind of a little, I was trembling a little bit when I saw, whoa, don't be making these vows just like that just because someone asked you to. So I decided, no, I'm not going to do anything like that. I'm going to ask you to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to spend some time uh, making some promises. Yeah, yeah. But I'm going to make promises I really am taking seriously and I believe I can reasonably keep because I'm going to put a time thing on it, you know, because I'm going to tell the Lord, yeah, I guess the spirit is very willing, but my flesh is weak. So I'm going to say, Lord, this is what I feel like I'm able to to vow to you at this point. And uh, I, there are just some things I'm just getting rid, rid of. I'm, I'm just they're just they're permissible things, you know what I mean? But uh, they're. They're unnecessary. They're, they're, they're un- there should be no question. Blatantly sinful things is not up for grabs. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about why do we want to be in gray areas of, of Christian living? I don't understand. Why? So I just want to encourage you, uh, particularly as the new year approaches, and particularly as we dro- re- rejoice in the fact that Emmanuel came to be with us. I just want to encourage you to turn up the bar, raise the standards, raise the stakes. Um, find somebody who looks like a Nazarite in, in our church. Somebody who's really sold out, really living the, living the life. You don't even have to tell that person. You're eyeballing him or her. And you just make that person your standard bearer, your role model. You know, not the person playing around, but the person who's really, really uh, an example of self-denial and personal sacrifice for the sake of others and for the glory of Almighty God. Follow that particular. I mean, there are there are a few of those around. <laughs> actually, a lot of those around here. Find somebody like that and say, "Oh God, uh, I am saved now and forevermore, and irreversibly so by your merits. But now I want to live a more meritorious Christian life as a saved person. I don't want to just be a convert. I want to be a fully devoted." follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Lord, that's, uh, that's only our heart's desire if you stir our hearts up to desire it because it just doesn't come naturally. So supernaturally, contrary to our nature, but in keeping with yours, would you move us to greater consecration, greater holiness, greater devotion, greater dedication. In your human form, you showed us ultimate yieldedness to the will of the Father. So you're our role model in that regard. Oh, God, would you help us to be more yielded to your will, Lord Jesus? This is not to win your favor. It's because we already have it. Oh, God, would you please get more of us out of us for your glory? This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.